0: Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry by democratizing access to the world's best expertise. I'm very excited to welcome Paul Biondi, Executive Partner at Flagship Pioneering and President of Pioneering Medicines. Thanks for joining us today, Paul.
1: Thanks, Raul. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah, same here.
0: Paul, to start off, tell us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, so I've been at Flagship now for two years, almost to the day. In fact, I think very close to my two-year anniversary. So at Flagship, I play two roles. I'm an executive partner. And in that role, I help kind of shepherd and help our companies grow and thrive that are you know, our more mature companies by sitting on the boards and, and working with those management teams. But the majority of my role is, and I'll describe this a little bit later, perhaps with you, which is that I oversee a new initiative at Flagship called Pioneering Medicines. And prior to that, I worked at Bristol-Myers Squibb. I was there for 17 years. The last five, I led the business development and strategy group. And prior to that, I'd been on the R&D side. Kind of a, so an interesting story how I kind of got to that career arc. When I came out of undergrad, I actually don't have a science degree. I was in political science and economics. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And somebody said, well, you know, why don't you go into management consulting and has sort of a great generalist training. And, you, you, you know, it's a lot of problem solving, good for a liberal arts background and so I joined up with a firm down in DC and very rapidly actually that firm got it was called strategic planning Associates, merged with another firm and a firm called Mercer Management Consulting. I got involved doing a lot of oil and gas work, believe it or not, with a lot of the major oil companies. And uh, you know, it was good that I worked with a bunch of partners there and I learned a lot. And I traveled the world, which was interesting, but um, and I learned a lot about cultures and how to make things happen in big companies. But you know, I come from a family of physicians. Dad was a physician, my brothers, my uncles, my mom was a nurse. So everybody my, that I knew was like in medicine. And I thought I never wanted to be a physician myself. I actually have a terrible fear of like people's blood and stuff. I just <laughs> couldn't, couldn't do it. So, but I really loved biology and things of like that. So I was thinking like, hey, I can't work for any of these large oil companies. And it wasn't because I was some you know, environmentalist, though now I probably would feel more that way, but it just didn't engage me. And so I thought, hey, getting into the healthcare would be a way to do it. Went back to business school, thought I would be actually get on the provider side. I used to help my dad. He was a sole practitioner and he built up a practice. He was a pediatricologist and I thought I would help him, you know, help other physicians and their business side. But then I worked at a pharmaceutical, I worked at JD Searle. That was, I was out at uh, Kellogg at Northwestern and they were just down the street in Skokie, Illinois. And I really loved it. I actually at that time worked for the commercial group just for a summer, and then I kept working my second year of business school. And I thought I'd really like to do this. I went back to uh, Mercer, and they were starting to build up a life sciences practice. And it just so happened that BMS ended up being a client of theirs. And there were some folks in the clinical organization really looking to redo how clinical development was done. The effort was primarily being led by Beth Seinberg at the time. Beth had come out of Merck, and you know really had I think a lot of visionary thoughts about how one should do clinical development. She was working for a guy named Peter Ringros, who'd come out of Pfizer to run R&D at BMS and really transform it. So we'd come in to work with her. And Brian Daniels at the time was her protege and brought in to run the project. So I worked very closely with Brian and we really revamped. This is back in 2000 as I, I was the consultant and revamped everything that was going on in clinical development at the time. A lot happened in BMS in 2002. This is when we were finishing up the project and lots of things. Beth decided to to leave. She went out to Amgen a guy named Elliot Siegel, who had been running research at the time, moved over to run development. And uh, luckily enough, Brian said, hey, you know, you should think about hiring Paul to come inside and and maybe help you because he was very instrumental in the transformation that, that Beth was leading before she left. And I was looking to move out of what I was doing. I had young kids at the time. I was living actually up in Cambridge and obviously BMS is located down near Princeton, New Jersey. And I said, hey, can't keep this commute going. And I really loved working with people that I knew there. Brian, the whole crew, and uh, so I was really fortunate. Elliot is, a, you know, was really my mentor and the person that really guided much of my career, and I was incredibly fortunate to start working with him. His background is interesting because he's a MD, PhD, but his PhD is not in anything in terms of biology. He was an industrial engineer. So I think he really appreciated what it takes to run at that time, you know, a three or 4,000, 17 site global organization running 150 clinical trials. And so he wanted somebody to help him do like the planning and business side. And also, you know, we, there was a real focus on R&D productivity at the time. So I kind of came in to help him implement the to change that had been put in place that it had started with Beth and um, Brian as the leader and as well as to then help, you know, launch a trajectory. And that was just an amazing run. So I worked there with him from 2002 through to the time that he retired in 2013. He eventually, he had run development, took over, I believe in 2004 or five for all of R and D. And we just had a tremendous run. In fact, I think we had either 14 or 15 drugs approved in a 10 year period, which, you know, just blows me away. You know, the first IO drug, you know, Eloquist, which is an amazing cardiovascular drugs, some incredible uh, ATV and HPV drugs, virology drugs. So just an incredible run of productivity. And I really got to see kind of a golden age of what a you know high-performing R&D organization looks like and be on the inside of that. You know, I was a non-scientist at a very high senior level within R&D, never gonna be the head of R&D. And I was thinking, hey, at some point, I probably should move on. Francis Cuss, uh, who took over R&D, was kind enough to say, hey, why don't we expand your role? And I ran some operational group, all of ClinOps, for a few years. But the big opportunity for me was when Charlie Bancroft, who was our CFO, who I'd known for years, he was running the business development group and said, hey, Paul, why don't you come over and run business development? And I had talked to him off and on about different career options that I might do and thought that's so part and parcel to R&D and portfolio strategy that you know so much of it is about alignment with the R&D group. So he said, you should come over and run this team. And uh, so I jumped at the chance and then over time, eventually moved from under him up to Giovanni Cafuria, the CEO, and took on strategy. And kind of last thing I did when I was there is we helped with the whole group of us, uh, the management team there, to do the acquisition of Celgene. And kind of at that point, I thought, all right, from a personal growth perspective, I love Brea mass and you know, it was a new chapter. And I thought, hey, if I'm going to move on after seventeen years, you know, this is probably the right. Point, to move into something else. And, you know, I'd always wanted to kind of get into biotech. And that's where I decided to move to flagship. And it's been a really, you know, amazing experience to be, you know, so close to so many interesting medicines that have gotten to patients.
0: Yeah, sounds like a remarkable run, Paul, given your background, as you were describing it, and for folks that are listening that perhaps have similar backgrounds to yours, what do you think made you successful as a non-scientist in R&D? And what are some learnings that perhaps others could have from your experience doing so?
1: No, that's a great question. And I actually, I get that a lot. So there's a couple of insights that I had. So one was Elliot helped me out. You know, I mean, Elliot helped me in so many ways. But one of the lessons I took away from him that has always stuck with me, which is he said, hey, Paul, when you're listening to something and someone's describing it to it, and if you don't understand it, you know, that's probably more on them than it is on you, you know, like. That might be more that they don't understand enough to explain it to you, and and don't be afraid to ask questions to kind of really get at the clarity of it. And I think that gave me a lot of confidence to just you know be unafraid to sort of ask what maybe people would be intimidated to ask as kind of hey is this a silly question? You know that's one learning about it, which is that you know there really are no silly questions because truly if you're asking the question and you're kind of a bright person, you know typically other people have it. The other piece I would say is a lot of people who are doing science; they want to get the science done, but they appreciate that you know the uh, art of drug development is a complex enterprise. And it, it requires a lot of complex processes, a lot of complex interaction, not only among scientific disciplines, but around disciplines of finance and strategy and, you know, issues of commercialization. You know, your ability to be an integrator and to make it so that the science can happen in the best way, I think, is something that a lot, as I've worked with scientists, you know, they really appreciate it. And, you know, that they wanted partners like that, which is, that's not how they were trained. It's not their skill set. You know they really wanted people to like help them make things happen. And you know that was kind of what I had been trained in. And so I think that that kind of partnership, and I see it all the time in like lead scientists that are leading, say drug development programs, often establishes very close rapport with their project manager, you know who while gets a lot of basic science, their you know skill set is in kind of driving things and integration. And I think that that's you know, if you can emphasize that aspect of it the last piece is you know being more expert in less iq things than eq things you know <laughs> it takes a lot for people to get along and trust and that kind of ability to kind of sort through how people get along and get things done particularly because this is such a multidisciplinary exercise nobody can really do it on their own is i think also something that non scientists can add a lot of value in a scientific environment
0: and now given your background in big pharma uh, prior to joining flagship what were some things that were I'd say a surprise to you, coming from an organization like BMS, to now you know sitting on boards of high-growth early-stage biotechs. And what were experiences that you think did translate over well, and areas where it was relatively new to you?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's been actually a really fascinating experience, and and different from what I expected for sure. I think one of the things that I appreciated, which was coming in which is how much how helpful that you could be as a board member and how much you really need to kind of lean in and be engaged in these companies so it's a very different dynamic you know when i used to go and you know kind of be part of the present let's say a bd opportunity at bms or you know an r&d strategy would have you you know bms is, has unbelievable depth and capability of management and and so the board is not there and you know kind of leaning in to help on that you know, you go to some biotechs, they need help. You know, they're, they don't have the expertise. They haven't built the depth yet. I mean, you're there not only to help govern and, you know, kind of guide and steer them, but they generally need you to kind of lean in and offer your help and expertise and advice. And I don't think I quite appreciated how helpful one could be and how engaging actually and interesting that could be. And more so than, you know, I think just purely playing that kind of governance role. So that's been an interesting piece. I mean, the things I've enjoyed is, you know, being in a large corporation is is highly constricting, right? There's just... The ability to control your own time and schedule, there's just so much that particularly as a senior leader, you just have to be involved in as a corporate leader in the company. And that's, you know, it's just expected and required. It just makes for a challenge in time management and scheduling and focus. You know, obviously I have a lot more degrees of freedom here. And I love that. You know, the things that you miss are just the depth of the team. You know, you just so much functional depth that if you have one individual, let's say that you're working with in a particular function for whatever thing, whether it's scientific function or a GNA function you know that they may not be the strongest person you've ever worked with, but you know they're kind of backed up, you know, that there's a lot there. You know, there's a trade-off with bureaucracy and you know trying to get through all of that and their own agendas. But that depth is something that, you know, you just kind of take for granted. Get into a company where, hey, that's super thin. And if you've got a good person in that role, great. If you don't, you know, it's a real challenge and you, you know, you really need to sit there and say, oh, wow. Okay. We, we need to bolster this thing up. And, you know, and oftentimes, you know, that's going outside and, you know, you're getting the help that you need, but uh, that aspect of it, I kind of knew it intellectually, but feeling it viscerally when you're actually in the middle of trying to get something done.
0: Yeah. I hear that. So switching gears a bit, I'd love if you could help us understand and lay the groundwork for the work that's been happening over the last decade, in terms of the advent and evolution of new treatment modalities across our sector, and the opportunities that that presents, and then also different approaches by all the different players in the space.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is one of the most amazing trends that's happening, kind of in our industry right now. And you know, and it was happening before. I mean, obviously, with you know the success of the um, COVID vaccines and the rise of mRNA, both at you know Moderna and, and at BioNTech you know, I think are tremendous breakthroughs, but, you know, there have been other ones that have been happening, you know, before that with, you know, alnylam and, you know, other groups that have, you know, shown other, you know, modalities that can be successful in in both cell therapy and gene therapies and and other oleanucotides. It's just been a plethora. And, I've appreciated because, you know, obviously when I was at BMS, you know, there were really just two modalities, right? You had small molecules and you had biologics and that, you know, even biologics, when I was at BMS, we spent a lot of time thinking about how to get into biologics and build up a capability for many of the years that I was there. And so to have this vast array of different tools that you can do to drug different targets is I think remarkable. And probably just now being tapped into for its biological potential. But I think trying to deal with how you deal with it on a organizational potential is really interesting. And I mean, part of the reason I did come to to flagship, because I was so intrigued by their approach. I mean, one is just the track record of the different modalities. It was pursuing things like Rubius, with its using red blood cells as drugs. uh, And, you know, some of the new companies are just coming out now, like Laurent using circular RNA and others, you know, just fantastic kind of the approaches of thinking about, novel modalities and also the issues with, you know, how does one build a novel multi-product platform and, you know, the opportunity to actually work on multiples of those, you know, I think what that, you know, hopefully should open up and is, I think the opportunity to really go after areas in some cases, you know, new biology, right. That, you know, as new biology emerges, you have these new tools and it suggests to you that new targets could be accessed in a way that hadn't been thought about, but probably even more exciting is to go back to, you know, targets that people have, thought about years ago. Right. But, but you couldn't do it through small molecules or proteins and, and, you know, now you really can. And that's something that, you know, we're doing with my team at, within uh, pioneering medicines is actually taking that approach. And it's great because we're able to think about a disease, think about some of these different approaches, and some of these targets that people have thought about and say, hey, given all the tools that we have at Flagship, you know, and all the modality approaches, you know, whether it be biological insights or, or true new drug classes, could we actually go after this in a way that other people hadn't thought about before? And I think that that's just going to be a fantastic trend. And I think we're starting to see this kind of breakthrough, right, in productivity, you know, finally, after such a long period of you know, year after year productivity droughts, I, I think this plethora of different modalities should, I think, reverse that trend that being said, I think how you organize around it and, you know, particularly for big pharma, this is a challenge. And even, you know, when I was in BD, it was a challenge just trying to think about, okay, should we go after a new modality? And one of the biggest, you know, I think considerations in that is the manufacturing piece to it. I think it was often, you know, it was was just an R&D exercise to think about bringing in a new drug and, you know, it was an afterthought to think about how to manufacture it, but, you know, increasingly getting manufacturing on board and getting them more forward thinking and open to how do we do this? You know, I think as a strategic capability, not a cost minimization area, which it had. You know, and that's how it evolved to because that's you know the nature of the technology and small molecules and even biologics has gotten to the point where that probably was the major consideration. They become highly reliable and scalable and commoditized. But now, you know, you really need to think about it. And you know, and I see a lot of consideration here at flagship, like for strategy like Moderna took and other of our companies about thinking about, hey, you know, how we set up for CMC and manufacturing and controlling that. And that is a strategic asset. Everything from IP strategy to the actual physical asset and how we do it, you know, is a major consideration in the strategy of the company. And I think that that increasingly will be something, you know, much like R&D strategies, manufacturing strategies, that will also start to take more of the fore going forward in terms of success.
0: Yeah. And it it being a a competitive advantage and perhaps even carving out new IP that otherwise hadn't existed if they didn't specialize in that area.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, even if you have composition of matter, but it, like, if you really have no ability to think about how to make it and or the control of something, like take, this is what I think people are looking at. Um, we looked hard at this as well, which is the linker that uh, Daiichi Senkyo now has. And I think the the recent clinical results that through with their partnership with AstraZeneca, you know, they clearly have fantastic technology that could just open up ADCs that people have known about for such a long time, right? But once you have that right technology, and, and if you control that, you know, you have a whole drug class to yourself. This is the way that I think Rubius will be right. You know, right now, like nobody's got an ability to go in there and and do what they've done. And so that kind of control LNPs to the extent that people have invested and create that to get into different tissue types um, over time beyond the liver, you know, will also, you know, be probably of similar nature. So, or viral vectors, we're seeing that, you know, that's obviously a, a key piece to the whole kind of gene therapy realm.
0: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Pioneering Medicines now. What was the motivation behind this initiative within Flagship and what all are you working on?
1: Yeah. So it's helpful to understand a little bit about Flagship and how it's set up and why the motivation to do Pioneering Medicines. So, you know, Flagship is really kind of a, it's an innovation company. It's a company of companies. I think gets kind of lumped in as a kind of venture capital investment firm, but that's really not the nature of, of what we do. You know, we do our own IP and generate our own explorations to create these with the goal of creating platforms that can be multi-product platforms. And we use venture capital funding in order to create these companies and develop them. But we also take a, a very long-term strategy in terms of how we would invest in them and develop them over time. What's great about that is it sets up the opportunity when I think Newbar, um, Afian, the CEO, and, and the other partners here at Flagship thought about it. They said, hey, you know, we, we do build these credible platforms that can be very widely applied but inherently, when you start a company, it has to have some focus. You can't have a management team just you know, trying to work on everything at once. But yet to demonstrate value on the platform, you want it to go in and show that it can work in multiple areas. So the thought was, hey, how, how could we do that in a way that doesn't distract the management team and keeps them on their mission? But, but yet we do a parallel effort. And, you know, there were some thoughts originally of like, hey, could we reach out, you know, and this is actually how I got to know Newbar and the team, which is reach out to large pharma and like, hey, would they be interested? But often happens is at that time, large pharma is like, hey, you know, this technology is very early, not validated yet, you know, maybe when it's a little bit more mature, come back to us. So the thought was, well, why don't we just do our own team? You know, why don't we within flagship itself, you know, establish an initiative to build kind of a world class R&D capability. Whose mission would be, be to harness all of the flagship technologies and think about parallel tracks of very specific product concepts that could be done, N- not to sort of take you know, whole areas of the, of the platform, but, but come up with very specific product concepts, you know, new medicines that could be applied on those platforms, and then prosecute them in parallel. So that's what Newbar asked me to come in and do two years ago. He said, "Hey, would you lead that initiative and you know, kind of build out the team?" And that's what I've done over the last two years. We've been very fortunate to bring in um, Luciano Rossetti, who was the former head of R&D at Merck KGA and formerly at um, US Merck before that. He's my head of R&D and also is the chief medical officer for flagship overall. Luisa Salter-Sid just recently, and I know you did a podcast with her. She came in to be chief scientific officer. She and I knew each other for a long time at BMS. Alec Reynolds came in to run our portfolio and operations. I got to know him through, uh, through the Celgene experience. You know, He's added tremendous value. I just added Palani um, Palanapan. He just came over from um, one of the Vance companies and has it was at Sarepta and Millennium and Takeda before that just a tremendous chief technology officer. And also have Tony Alparantes and uh, Anand Patel who've come in to both help us with explorations and do clinical development and and, and lead some of our programs. And Gary Sutton has been instrumental. He came in from Novartis to help me on corporate development. So I bring them up because it's a really experienced team that I think we can hit the ground running to do, do both discovery and early development. So what we're trying to do is say, hey, as we take diseases, so let's take obesity. And think about it. We break it down into innovation categories. And then we take a step and said, let's look across all the different technologies that Flagship has. Could we think we could crack into some of these categories? And then what we do is go to the companies and say, hey, listen, we think we have a really interesting idea for you guys that basically we would bring four things to. We'll bring the concept to you. We know the biology and have investigated and think your platform would be a good fit to it, though. There's a dialogue there. We bring all the capital because we're funded through the Flagship Funds we bring the capability of the team i just described and the people underneath them and as well as you know we can potentially bring partnerships to bear and you know we think that that's a pretty interesting value proposition to the companies as well so that they get it to say okay i get it you guys could do these programs in parallel to us you know we'll share in the upside of any program that we made they get to keep the any ip that's created as well as obviously if we're successful not only did they get the success and the asset that's created the new medicine but they also get the success of having, you know, an additional thing done on their platform and that additional level of kind of validation. So, you know, it's exciting for me. It was great because I think this is what stuff when I had done both R&D and BD, like, you know, it's hard to say, okay, after all of that, go ahead and just choose one thing that you, you know, are passionate about, Paul, and you want to go lead or, you know, be a part of. And, you know, it was just hard to do. And I think, you know, Newbar gave me the opportunity to really come in and work on multiple things through this initiative at Pioneering Medicines. And I got to build something and, you know, that's been a really great journey, but also to be able to get exposed to multiple things at once, I think has been, you know, a real advantage.
0: Yeah. It's a very interesting model in terms of leveraging existing platforms and perhaps IP and create a faster path to market. Given the work that flagship's portfolio companies are doing, is the thinking that when there is you know something like an asset in obesity that's defined, that they would then form subsidiaries within pioneering medicines?
1: Yeah, so our goal would be, hey, let's take these through to human proof of concept. That would be kind of the default. At that point, we feel like, hey, once we get into registrational trials, that brings up questions of commercialization. We're never, you know, flagship doesn't want to be a commercialization entity at this point. So we would want to probably hand it off to a commercialization partner. In order to do that, what we would do is set these up as kind of legal and financial entities so that they would be subcorps of ours that wouldn't be operating companies. So the Pioneering Medicine's team will be employees of Flagship and, you know, we'll do all the work or we'll work with Chlora or other groups to bring in people to help us. And, you know, we'll get the work done along with the platform company itself but the asset itself and the IP will sit in these legal financial corporations so that we can both finance them and and ultimately probably transact. And we could also, you know, potentially think about spinning one out. And at that point, if we thought that that made sense, and maybe we aggregate several assets together because we think that would create an interesting company. You know, we could then put in place, you know, a management team and make it more of a, a true operating company at that point. But we're thinking right now is like kind of single asset companies that we would transact on at human proof of concept would be the kind of norm.
0: And are you focused on any particular therapeutic areas or therapeutic area agnostic at this point?
1: We're generally trying to be agnostic. We're, we're trying to focus on areas that we don't think our companies would naturally go to. And this is not dogma, it, you know, it's more guidelines, but, you know, our companies tend to focus in on oncology initially, often certain rare diseases. And it makes sense for platform companies to go in those directions because, you know, they're trying to go in places where they can get into patients and figure out if their platform, you know, really works in humans quickly. And, you know, it makes sense to go in those areas. That being said, you know, one of the things, and this is even a personal kind of mission and bias of mine is to say, hey, there are a lot of diseases out there that the whole industry has moved away from. And this is, you know, and honestly, BMS, we kind of led the charge on this to move towards specialty diseases versus some of the larger primary care. And I would love to have us to find a way to go after some of those diseases. You know, in some cases, it's a little bit out of the reach of maybe the funding capabilities of within, you know, kind of biotech realm, but, you know, not so much, not if you're just trying to get to, you know, potentially human proof of concept. So, you know, I I would love to get into areas like cardiovascular metabolism, you know, diseases of the metabolism. We're looking at a lot of autoimmune spaces and areas of immunology. I think that those could be really ripe areas because there's just not a lot going in those areas. You know, we're, we're looking at areas of kind of, you know, CNS. I mean, there's a lot that's in the biotech industry right now in the kind of neurodegeneration area. And not so much though, in the kind of classic psych areas. So- But trying to figure out the balance of, you know, is there good biology to go after? Or do we have any insights around biology that would allow us to go into some of those areas? Or, hey, do some of these novel modalities allow us to go after, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, kind of targets and get into some of these areas and be more successful, perhaps, than people thought they could be in the past.
0: And you recently signed an exciting partnership. So talk to us a little bit about how that partnership came together and, and what you're hoping to get out of it.
1: Yeah, no, I'm really pleased about this. So we announced on November third a partnership with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and I'm really pleased to work with Mike Boyle and Bill Skage and the whole team at CFF. They've been terrific to work with. This was a relationship actually that John Menline, who's another executive partner at Flagship, had. John and I have known each other for years because uh, BMS is actually one of the very first companies that when I was in R and D. Now before I was in the BD role. Uh, BMS Bob was at Nexus, which John was the CEO of at the time. But before that, he was at Aurora, which was the precursor company to many of the now kind of compounds that are the standard of care to treat CF, which is terrific. So he's always had a relationship with the foundation. And I think in talking with them, you know, they all felt this kind of, you know, mission of which, hey, it's terrific. I mean, what a, what an advancement in the treatment of people with CF right now that anybody with this Delta 508, you know, mutation, the standard of care is just quite remarkable versus there was nothing before. But, you know, there are a lot of people that don't have that mutation and therefore can't be treated. And, you know, we're back to, you know, really not having anything very effective. So foundation feels this as an amazing sense of urgency. And, are putting their substantial resources to try to find what they call paths of the cure. So, you know, there was the observation of John to say, hey, it might not be to go after this kind of rare nonsense mutation or or rare mutations of our companies to do that naturally. But Wood of Pioneering Medicines was kind of a way of bringing that together with the foundation, the foundation providing some initial capital to provide that kind of initial de-risking, you know, which might get people over the hump to get into there to sort of bring people into the area. And then pioneering medicines, we could also be helpful in actually prosecuting by bringing in biology, you know, from the foundation, you know, in a centralized way across multiple of our companies, because the feeling was that, hey, you know, the way the foundation obviously had, you know, what they often do is, you know, a company decides to get in to work on an area and then applies to them to get funding. You know, what we said is, hey, we can take multiple companies bring them to the area that they might never have thought to do this, you know, and then we can have multiple approaches. We started with three companies, but we can think of maybe bringing more companies over time. In fact, we think there's probably two other companies that as they mature, we want to bring them into the collaboration. So we're super excited. They're going to provide a lot of funding to it Uh, over time. We will as well. You know, they're going to bring their biological insights and their amazing, you know, network of, you know, investigators and all of their great contacts with all the patients, you know, in the United States and beyond. You know, I think it's a, a just a fantastic three-way combination of basically the foundation, pioneering medicines and our platform companies to really go and help these people living with CF that really are in dire need of help. And I think we've got some terrific technologies that can hopefully advance and bring these therapies to them. And in some cases, you know, what Tessera one of our companies is working on, they're kind of a next, I think you talked to Jeff Melton. Milton there, maybe highlighted this, but they're a gene writing company, sort of a next generation of not only editing, but being able to insert. And, and so they're really thinking about like an entire cure for all CF patients, but hopefully also for the ones that really need the cure. And that kind of unbelievable transformational impact is you know what brings me to work every day.
0: It certainly sounds like an exciting partnership for significant unmet need. I'm curious, Paul, in terms of partnerships and given your experience on partnerships, what have you seen that has changed as it relates to deal-making in biotech over the last five to 10 years? And where do you see partnerships heading over the next decade?
1: Yeah, no, great question. I mean, I think you're seeing a lot of things in terms of And part of this gets back to the whole multimodality piece. I mean, I think people are seeing the need to have more optionality into the biotech space and they just, you know, you just can't keep up with it internally. I mean, there's just no way. And that's both probably on the biology side, as well as on the modality side and and trying to think about putting more bets out there of, of different approaches and targeted in the areas of interest that you have and the capability one has, you know, the different kind of therapeutic centers of excellence or franchises that different large companies have. And I think that that trend is just going to continue and they're going to need to. I mean, I think the disruption that you know people have seen with mRNA and just you know how quickly this is gonna if you're a vaccine maker, holy mackerel, right? You know, that's something that you're now gonna, if you don't have it, you're gonna have to figure out a way to do it. And you know, I think having thought about hey, how could you have dealt with that earlier and, and maybe had more optionality towards something like that, knowing it's a it's a difficult challenge, right? Because you don't know, you don't know which of these technologies is gonna work, probably not so much. You know eventually, I think you know people will make these things work. You just don't know when, right? I mean, look at gene therapy, right? It took twenty years. We thought you know in the last yeah. couple of years we'd had big breakthroughs now, you know they've you know it's two step forward, one step back, you know cell therapy, amazing, you know very rapid rise to incredible efficacy, but you know very difficult to scale and even make money in that business right now. you know, but people will solve these problems. you just don't know when. I think everyone's recognized, or at least on the large pharma side, I think they recognize the need to be in these things. And it's a matter of when and how do you jump in, right? And which bets do you place and what do you integrate and what do you don't? But I think the need to to be more networked and have more bets out there, I think is important. I mean, I appreciated when we did the, the acquisition with Celgene, the strategy that Celgene had, which I think... You know, it was born out of necessity, but I think it was really smart. You know, they placed a lot of different bets and they were very successful and they were very good about being, you know, allowing companies to go off and do their own thing. And I think there's more acceptance of that now than there was before. Before it was, okay, you're the tiny little biotech and, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to be all over you. <laughs> you know, thanks very much. Or we're just going to take you over, take it all in. I, I think because of the novel modality piece, which is, you know, it's not like Big Pharma has any experience in these. So they kind of need the biotech to be good at what they do and need them to come along with them. You know, you're seeing more of this you know, we need to work in partnership, we need you to be successful as an independent entity as much as, you know, we need this asset to kind of work in tandem. And you're also seeing, I think, a lot of creativity in the the way that these partnerships are set up in terms of, you know, not just classic, here's an upfront, a series of milestones and some royalties, you know, you're seeing more equity payments, you're seeing more option deals you know, I think that that's more interesting going along. And you're saying, you know, because a lot of these assets are coming in smaller diseases where the biotech can also stay in the some form of the commercial space, particularly in the US. So there's more willingness, I think, for the larger companies to work, you know, with the biotech company as they develop their own commercialization capabilities. So it's a very interesting time. I mean, it's a great time to actually be in the business development space. I think there's a lot of room for creativity and a lot of, you know, absolute need for it because, you know, it's, it really needs to be the You know, a major part of any innovation engine at any large pharma company at this point.
0: Yeah, certainly agree. In many ways, it right now feels like the golden age of biotech and the pace at which we as an industry are growing. The investment of capital within our industry has been fairly dramatic over the last two years or so. But that also does present some challenges for us as a sector. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you foresee some of those challenges being over the next five years or so, or what perhaps you're already seeing as a, as a function of this rapid growth across our sector.
1: It's funny. We got together as a leisure team recently. That was nice. It's like the first time since COVID, we all got together as a leadership team. You know, we were all going around the table to just talk about what we were working on and you know, many of us had met each other in person and, and just sort of what some of our priorities were. And I would say, you know, the word talent was like every other word, <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, that's the issue. We have great ideas and flagship is just brimming with it as just a, you know, a systematized way of coming up with ideas. And obviously we have tremendous access to capital. And so, you know, talent is the rate limiting step for us. And though we have invested quite a bit and have great folks and all of us spend a lot of time on it. I do think talent and how we can access talent, develop talent, it, you know, it's because it's one thing that if somebody's technically talented, it's a whole different thing to say they're entrepreneurially talented. And then oftentimes you don't know that, right? Because there just aren't that many people that have been through an entrepreneurial venture. And so, you know, I think that that's the one area where I think we're all focused on, hey, how do we get more people? Now, what's really nice is that I think with the ability to finance companies and what has come along with that is the ability to actually pay people, you know, very much part and parcel with what people could get in big companies. And yet with the potential upsides that, you know, you can offer through equity structures and long-term incentive structures in smaller companies, you know, you're really able to do that. I also think like the partnership and what you do at Clora, or, you know, can provide, I think that that's going to be increasingly important. I think the network of, I'll call them independent agents. And I wonder that that's not going to develop into something more robust, you know, even more like what you see in like the movie industry, you know, where you've got formal agents representing talent, I think mechanisms to really figure out how we can identify that talent, get them more deployed. And, you know, what I see in, in COVID has sort of brought this out, right, which is, you know, the ability to kind of do, you know, individual assignments, right, and projects and the comfort level with, hey, that you can do that in over Zoom and be highly effective, you know, really opens up to you a bunch of people, you know, the guy that wants to live out in Montana, right? And as long as he can get a really good internet connection and he's willing to get up early if he's on the East Coast or really working with Europe or whatever, you know, can be highly effective. And I think that those type of people will say, hey, I'm really interested in doing this, you know, one particular thing. And maybe I don't want to be part of, you know, everything that goes along with a large company. So I think that piece around talent, how we solve for that, You know, look maybe at other industries and what they've been doing. You know, that is a, I think, a really interesting trend. I think the other interesting piece is just how digitization, right, is just going to transform what we do. And, you know, it's funny when I was at BMS, we were talking about it. When I got to Flagship, I saw we were living it, but the sense of urgency and the speed by which it can work and just everything related to machine learning and, you know, in AI, there's no doubt it's going to be transformational. You know, again, back to this when, how, you know, there's a lot of questions, but, I think when people are even talking about like cryptocurrencies, like they don't quite know how this stuff is going to be impactful yet, but it's clearly going to be impactful. Like the same thing. This is going to have a huge impact on what we're doing. And I see it, you know, and how it's transforming, you know, these startups today, but even just even operating in a more digital way. I mean, even just back to the talent piece or, you know, just how could that unlock some of things that, you know, would be great. I think probably the big headwind we're still not dealing with effectively as a, as an industry is affordability, you know, of our medicines, so it's just, it's a huge challenge. Trying to get the balance of not squashing the incentive innovation, trying to deal with kind of what in my mind are essentially trade issues, i.e. other countries, you know, free riding on the United States as free market system, because without the US, my God, you know, what would we do? But, you know, that's, you know, we need to, we need to find ways to think about and deal with that. I think that that is kind of a major challenge.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the modularization of highly specialized work in our industry, I hope can act as quite an accelerant. And have, you know, downstream effects on drug pricing and reimbursement as well. So I tend to agree that there's a lot we can learn as an industry from how other industries have approached similar challenges.
1: Yeah. And, and you hope it actually other aspects of the healthcare world come into play. I mean, I think getting the ability to see real world evidence of the, you know, because there's no doubt in my mind, medicines are an incredibly cost-effective way of dealing with healthcare issues, mm. It's just so hard to see that. And, you know, the way all the way the budgeting works and just the fact that you can't see the hidden cost of things and the benefit of things, even beyond just healthcare spending, but into productivity, into the workplace and all those things. And, you know, as much as we try to do, you know, real world evidence and stuff like that, you know, it's just, it's just hard. We just don't yet have the systems, I think, to do that. And, you know, that would be a nice thing if that gets more digitized, right? And you can start to see these benefits of these, particularly earlier and earlier interventions, which should make more and more and more sense, right? And a lot of the science takes you there, but, you know, we we talk about it here because health security and prevention is a major, you know, along with pioneering medicines as another major initiative and flagship. And, but yet it almost requires a new business model to make those kind of investments in those things. And, you know, that's kind of what, you know, it's not only the science that you need to pioneer on, it's you know, the business model to go along with it much the way, you know, Henry Tamir back in the day and others, you know, came up with a business model that worked for rare diseases. And now, you know, nobody questions the way rare diseases works. You can absolutely, even though these, these tiny populations, you know, you study them and, you know, both benefit those patients and, you know, make a return on that. So, you know, we probably need things like that, but unlocking these things through, you know, investments and things like electronic patient records. And, you know, as a patient, you know, your entire longitudinal medical history available, you know, just things like that are, you know, hopefully going to come to bear over the next decade.
0: And Paul, one final question for me, given all of your experience across big pharma, early stage biotechs on the venture side, for perhaps our younger listeners that aspire to have the career that you have had, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self?
1: Well, you know, that's great. I mean, I think a couple things. I mean, one piece of advice, which was you probably know that you're ready to move on to something before you actually put the gears in motion to do it. And don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I had an absolutely fabulous career at BMS. I loved it. But, you know, I look back and say, you know, I probably could have pushed myself to leave R&D sooner, you know, for sure. Comfortable. I enjoyed it. You know, and I was being highly affected, but was I really stretching myself and really learning? You know, uh, probably the last couple of years, I'm not so sure. I a have a good friend uh, who's a partner of BCG, just retired recently. And, you know, they had a rule that says six years. You know, basically, if you're in a role that hasn't substantially changed, don't do it more than six years. And I can see the benefit of that, right? Because people say three years, but that's too soon. It takes three years to just get up and running and understand what you're doing, have a vision for doing it, start to put it in place. You know, then the next year you start to affect it. But then after that, you sort of, you've done your bit, you've kind of had your ideas and your willingness to kind of entertain new ideas, you know, diminishes you know, you'd calcify a little bit. So, yeah, that would be one piece, which is to make sure that you're moving on not too quickly. I think sometimes I see people today, you know, God, I just got to jump and I got to move. And I don't think if you do that, you're anywhere long enough to realize that to just see the whole spectrum of it having an impact on anything. And you should want to, you know, be able to look back every year and what you're doing and saying, you know, forget your performance review or what your boss thinks or anything, but what do you think? Do you, in your heart of hearts, think that you had an impact on something that you can feel good about, you know, that you would describe to, you know, your children or your partner or close friend that you'd be super proud about? So that, you know, there's a little bit of like pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, but also being, you know, patient enough to realize that, you know, you should have a high bar about like having a real impact. I think that that's, you know, when I look back, I wish I had done differently. The only other thing I would say to people in and uh, and to be honest with you in this regard I was incredibly lucky I mean I have had the world's best bosses I mean and just incredible you know I mean just amazing people Elliot Siegel was just an incredible person to work for Francis Cuss, Charlie Bancroft Giovanni Caforio and now Newbar. I mean just amazing people you know it's a little bit what I tell my kids take professors not classes it's a little bit like take bosses you know when if you have a choice if if you don't have a choice of boss then you know go in eyes wide open that you're getting a lot out of that role you know, that's a tough thing to do, you know, and be very cognizant of it because it makes an enormous difference. And, you know, I think that that's often why people leave roles is because they just don't have the engagement, you know, because of who they work for. And so you should be really cautious about jumping into a role if you have questions there.
0: Well, on that salient advice from Paul, thanks for joining us today. It was great to have you on and do this with you and, and for sharing your, your insights and the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing over at Pioneering Medicines.
1: Well, thanks, Rural. This is a great format. I mean, I think this is a tremendous industry and you, know, you just couldn't find a more interesting mission-driven industry. And yeah, you know, it's fun to talk about and I'm glad you're providing this kind of opportunity to for intellectual discourse. So thanks for having me on. This has been
0: fantastic. Yeah, thanks so much, Paul. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.